Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. lovely things I think that kind of gives hope to all of us who are procrastinators is that we don't ourselves necessarily know what our deepest task is and if we happen to be writers or creative people it may not be for us to judge which is the best thing or most important thing we've done and we may well be wrong about that and it may be that something that we thought wasn't important was a bit of a oh I just did that quickly for a friend kind of thing may turn out to be the very thing that we were always meant to do and I think Coleridge's poems like uh, The Mariner and Kublai Khan were never part of Plan A with Coleridge. And yet, you know, if we're to be asked what we remember Coleridge for, I mean, those two poems would be sort of top of the list. And of course, you can't tell how a person is going to be read over the long span. Do we all have an inner poet? And how can the words and symbols in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner help us to come to terms with the challenges we face in our daily lives? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack the unique poetic voice of British romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and hear how his words and creative vision have consoled, transformed and shaped so many lives. In Mariner, a voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, poet, songwriter and theologian Malcolm Geish writes, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is a poem of pure imagination, a moral tale, an immoral tale, a farrago of superstitions, a profound Christian allegory, a drug-filled nightmare, a poem of psychological disintegration, a vision of final integration, and in more recent times, a prophetic ecological warning. Malcolm goes on to state, Dreams and discernment always go together, and in some ways, this whole dreamlike poem, with its richly laden emblems and symbols, is an instrument for spiritual discernment. So who was Samuel Taylor Coleridge? What were his motivations for writing the poem? And how does the rhyme of the ancient mariner speak to the challenges of the 21st century? I'm Malcolm Guyton, and I'm a poet. Uh, I'm a priest in the Church of England and a, a chaplain at a a Cambridge College, but uh, I write widely on a number of subjects and uh, lecture and speak. I, I play in a band as well and uh, generally live life as thoroughly and fully as I can. Really well done on the book, um, Malcolm. It's an astonishingly interesting biography. It's also very consoling and humbling in parts. I'm just going to throw you a big white open question to kick things off. Are we all called to be voyagers in a lot of different ways? Yes, I, I think we are. I think the the voyage as a metaphor for our own life is an almost universal one. I think that sense of obviously just literally that we start, as it were, floating in, you know, in our mother's womb, and then we kind of pass through the narrow isthmus, as it were, and out onto the world, and have that sense of having, having left a harbour or a haven and being on a sea. Uh, I think that's that's just a, a universal metaphor. And if you think of some of the great, you know, early classical poetry, you think, for example, about the Odyssey. That becomes a story that, in a sense, everybody can can relate to. And the sense both of outgoing and, of course, of of homecoming speaks so deeply, I think, to all of us at different levels. Why did you choose to write about Samuel Taylor Coleridge? I know you describe him as a poet of inspiration and agony. He's a tremendously interesting, complex man. He wasn't simple, to put it mildly, and he he made a lot of mistakes throughout his life. So was that what drew you to him in a lot of ways? 
it's a mixture of things. As, as, as I'm sure you know, you know, Coleridge is often paired with Wordsworth, and they were great friends and published the, the epoch-making lyrical ballads together. And as I gradually got to know a little bit more of their lives and poetry, to be honest, I always found the Coleridge the more attractive of the two characters. There was something, you know, prim and proper and finally sort of rather heavily established about Wordsworth and impregnable, whereas Coleridge had many flaws, but they were all open to everybody. He wasn't mm. at all a person who concealed his weaknesses. And I, I intuited that there was some deep relation between his weaknesses and his strengths, as it were, that his very capacity and sensitivity, which allowed him to write poetry of great ecstatic vision as well as articulating mm. the depths of misery, meant that he was himself personally open to those heights and depths and, you know, suffered uh, both exaltation and desolation, if you like, more than in the measure of, of many. So there's something attractive about that. Also, um, the, the huge, wide range of his intellectual interests, he, he was fascinated by language, obviously, as a poet, but he was fascinated by the beginnings of science and had friends, you know, Humphrey Davies, who became sort of one of the fathers of modern chemistry. He, he was interested in the, the life and politics of his day, and he, he had all those kind of ardent desires for justice. And I think there's something about him which is, which is simply attractive in itself. He was also gregarious and friendly, um, and um, his letters are absolutely, once you get into his letters, his letters are wonderful. He, he made and kept friendships over a lifetime and uh, friendships with many people with whom he disagreed, but he, he always kept the, the friendship itself kindled. When you think about some of his great poems, they certainly have a lot of spiritual and psychological force, don't they? Well, that's right. And in fact, one of my reasons for writing this biography, apart from giving myself an excuse to immerse myself a little more in the writings of a, a poet I deeply admire, was a feeling that I had that although Coleridge has been very well served by biographers, not least by, by Richard Holmes, who wrote a, a great, mm. a highly readable, I, I think essential two-volume biography. But I noticed that even there in that biography, Holmes, and certainly in some others, that maybe it's a blind spot in our own more secular culture, but I felt that Coleridge's deep spiritual insights weren't being seen, and particularly his, his, his Christian faith. It's not by any means a completely, as it were, it's not a, a kind of entirely conventional Christian faith, but it's a deeply, deeply held working through of the notion of being created and fallen and redeemed, and, and particularly um, later in his life about of course, as a poet, he was very attracted by the mysterious way in which Christ is referred to in John's Gospel as Logos, as word. He's very interested in that. And I felt that the spiritual um, side of Coleridge's life had perhaps been a bit neglected. But it seemed to me so central in his most famous poem, The, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, that, that uh, I wondered if we could do something to restore that and redress an, an imbalance a little. You write in your introductions to your wonderful biography that one of the reasons Coleridge can speak directly to our age is that he lived in and confronted addiction and its attendant self-loathing, which seems to be one of the deepest, if most hidden, curses of our own age. Yes, uh, Coleridge, uh, as is, I think, fairly widely known, had a, a long struggle, indeed, in a way, a lifetime struggle, certainly from his um, early manhood, um, really till the end, with um, addiction to opiates. Of course, in, in Coleridge's day, um, a tincture of opium known as laudanum, and there were various other varieties of it, was, was not illegal and was very widely prescribed as a general kind of anodyne and painkiller. 
and uh, he had uh, actually rheumatic fever and, and various rheumatic pains in his joints as well and was originally dosed with opium just as almost most people were uh, every now and then to relieve that pain. But um, when he moved up to the Lake District to be with Wordsworth, it happened that up there there was this <laughs> notorious mixture of it called the Kendall Black Drop, which was about four times as strong as what he'd been used to you know, in the West Country. And um, partly through a very bad winter, partly also he confesses clearly in his letters through the kind of crises, you know, in his personal life and his professional life in relations with what he was living through. I think he, he found he was seeking it both as pain relief genuinely, if you like, medically, but also as a kind of fix for the sheer tensions through which he was living. And I don't think he or anybody fully understood how addictive it was. So, of course, what would happen, as many addicts know, is that, you know, he would realize that he was getting a bit too much of a grip on his life. He would stop taking it. And lo and behold, all the symptoms and the pains and the bodily aching and the sleeplessness that he'd taken it to relieve would return. And surprisingly, when he took it again, they, they went away again. You know, so it was a cycle um, until he realized sort of too late that he was really in the grip. Do you think all the um, hallucinations and all the crazy highs and lows within all the um, all the nights high in opium, do you think that helped him in some way or opened up his imagination to give such, I suppose, force to his poetry? Well, there's sort of two answers to that. Long term, and he, I'm sure, would have been the first to say this, long term it didn't help him at all. Long term, the agony of the addiction, the, the kind of horrors of withdrawal, the sense of detachment and latitude, the inability. He used to feel that his will, his desire to do something, and his actual voluntary power to move his hands and do it had become sort of completely severed from one another. So in the long term, I think it actually poisoned the wellsprings of his imagination. But I think very early on, I mean, he tells the famous story about his poem, Kubla Khan, that, that he had uh, you know, he had a, an illness and that while he was staying up at this farm you know, near Porlock, he, he took some... Uh, some grains of opium, and then he was reading a book about travels, about traveling to Kublai Khan's stately dome, and then he he sort of has a wonderful opium-inspired vision and writes down as much of it as he can. And there may be some truth. I mean, lots of scholars have contended about how much he could have actually been high when he was writing that, because it's so lucid and so beautifully balanced, and he claims it was unfinished, but actually it works perfectly just in the number of lines that we've got of it. But there may have been an influence of opium in the kind of strange, luminous, streaming imagery in it. So if you like, if opium was influencing there, then it was, as it were, in the kind of honeymoon period of the drug. But um, later on, I think it debilitated his writing. The interesting thing, I think, though, is that um, he certainly wasn't a deep addict and wasn't beyond the honeymoon period by the time he was composing The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And yet The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner introduces this terrible figure of the nightmare life in death and of the mariner, well, after everyone else has died, being cursed to a kind of living death, filled with self-loathing, condemned to a sense that, you know, as he famously says, you know, a, a thousand, thousand slimy things lived on and so did I. And many people who are going through, if you like, the nightmare of bad trips and withdrawal, have pointed to this poem and said, oh, my goodness, this is so what it's like. But actually, Coleridge's imagination got there first. And that's one of the things I've, I found most fascinating in writing the book. I I'd thought to myself it would be interesting to use the basic story and images of the, of the mariner 
to tell Coleridge's story um, because later on he began to identify with the Mariner a bit. But it, was it when is I extraordinary down, how prescient it is as a it poem. It is extraordinary. When you look at the seven parts of the poem and then you basically map Coleridge's life onto it, it's extraordinary how closely the, the pattern works. In fact, I mean, I put this in the, in the um, introduction to the book, I think. Uh, Coleridge, of course, believed probably this thing which he's most famous for as a, as a literary critic and a prose writer as well as a, a religious thinker is, is his deep emphasis on the imagination, that the imagination for Coleridge, he distinguishes it from fancy. Fancy is just making stuff up that doesn't mean anything. But imagination if you, is, if you like, deep poetic myth-making. Uh, and um, Coleridge really believed, and um, I think demonstrated in lots of ways, that uh, what we might now think of as the as the the artistic or poetic imagination is a means of discerning and discovering truth. And he uses a very beautiful image for this uh, in his book, The Biographia Literaria. He he talks about how a little sort of winged fly, when it's still at the kind of lava and pupa stage, when it's, when it's making the cocoon, if you like, or the carapace, the hard protective shell into which it will, you know, uh, grow and, 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 and have its metamorphosis. It says it makes a long outer casing to protect the antennae that it doesn't yet have. And he says that's what the imagination does. Is it, it somehow intuits, it leaps ahead of the rest of our mind, and it, it holds open for us a shape into which we will grow. And uh, I think there's an extraordinary way in which somehow Coleridge wrote his own myth before he lived it or intuited a shape of his life. So I began to find that the voyage out and the disastrous meeting with the nightmare life and death all came true for Coleridge. But so, and this is the neglected thing, so did the transfigured vision, the new way of seeing things, the return home, and the way the Marin at the end has a kind of mission to meet particular people and tell them a transformative story. All of that happened to Coleridge. Well, you could look at it there, Malcolm, that we all in ways are, you know, shaping our destiny and it's by our certain types of decisions that we make, our judgment calls and how that shapes up into our lives and the consequences of those decisions. So he just did it creatively and then lived through that creation. That's exactly right. And one of the things, of course, that he explores imaginatively and teases out is that sense that we can sometimes do something completely disastrous, sort of randomly, apparently for no reason. You know, everything's going well, well and then we just suddenly screw up our lives. And um, that kind of random, mysterious wrecking of things that happens, not only individually, but often, you know, at a national level, you maybe maybe we're witnessing that in nationally and politically in various ways. You know, something somebody does something really stupid and then they have to live with the consequences. And uh, how do they recover from that? And how do they not only recover, but in the end grow from that and become wiser? And that, of course, is exactly what's going on, you know, when the mariner randomly shoots the albatross. He never gives a reason for doing it at any point. I'm just wondering, there is an awful lot of loneliness, persecution, alienation, suffering in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And then we have this wonderful transformation at the end. Do you think in some ways you could use use this poetry as a as a discernment tool? I think you can. I mean, I, I mentioned that in, in various ways. In fact, not only can you, I actually once led a week-long retreat at a p- retreat house that was particularly for people who had been through or were going through crisis. And um, I used the rhyme in the ancient manner. We read, we read a little bit of it each day, and I opened out what was going on. And then I just got people to talk, you know, in a very safe and confident space with the images of the poem about how they felt. 
And it was amazing how that poem gave voice to what people often felt but couldn't. I mean, if you think about verses like, you know, alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a one took pity on my soul in agony, you know. Sometimes one of the most awful things about loneliness is that your inner, almost existential loneliness, is that you can't hardly speak it to anyone. So for somebody sitting in a room, finally having the courage to join a small group, and then finding that this poet has said it for them, has just uttered what that feels like. Or another verse, you know, from that same passage, the very famous one that's, that everybody quotes, you know, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. That sense of being surrounded by something that ought to do you good, but is not doing you any good. So, um, yeah, I think it's been very useful for discerning and articulating the dark places that people are in, but it's also been useful in another way, in that um, there's a famous passage in the poem where, when he's sort of beginning to recover, the mariner falls into a, a swound, into a, a, a sort of altered state, and he hears two voices discussing the two sides of his life and discussing whether he can get better again. And he almost is able to externalize into these other voices. And the voices are spiritual beings who are going to help him. And uh, when we were, when he, he's in an almost dreamlike state when he hears this. And um, it tells him truths about himself that he couldn't have found out any other way. And that led us in the group that I was working with, you know, to a real discussion of sort of dreams and intuitions and listening, as it were, to apparently external voices that may nevertheless help to tell us who we are, you know, what somebody else has said, a book we've read something that, that's caught our attention, perhaps for a reason that's deeper than we ourselves realise. Is the rhyme of the ancient mariner, is it all about grief and shame, do you think? Like, I, when I was reading through your biography and there's certain aspects or certain passages whether depending on your mood, you could look at all the shame. Then you could look at all the guilt and then you can look at ideas of redemption. There's so many different moods in it, isn't there? There are. I, don't, I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that it was you know, all about grief and shame, but I think it's, it's realistic about those things. Mm. And it's about a journey out and through them and back from them and, and about recovery as well. I actually think one of the crucial things in the ancient marriage, not only, if you like, about our own personal psychology or our own personal spirituality, deep and important as that is, I think it's also, and this is another reason why I think of it as being a prophetic poem, I think it is a poem about the way we should, the stance we should take, the relationship we, we should have to the wider environment and the rest of nature. I mean, in the, po in the poem, the mariner, you know, when, the, when the albatross appears in the poem, the sailors are really stuck. You know, they've sailed right down into the Antarctic ice. They're surrounded by ice flows. They can't go backwards or forwards. There's no living thing. This could be the end of them. And then, as it were, miraculously, the albatross appears. And in the poem, the albatross actually saves the entire crew and guides them through. And without its, if you like, local knowledge, they would never have got through and they get round the Cape Horn and they get into the Pacific. And it's after the guiding through that the mariner shoots the albatross. And actually, none of the shipmates have really understood how important this random, you know, this different species, this other bird was to them. At first, they blame him, and so you shouldn't have shot it. And then when the weather picks up, they say, oh, maybe the bird was causing the problems of the fog and mist, so you should have shot it. So they're sitting there saying, not, does this bird have a life of its own? Not, is it telling us something we really need to know about the whole nature of the area that we're in? But just, can we, you know, what does it mean for us? What does it do for us? How can we use it? It's what I call in the book an instrumental view. Now, of course, in the poem, what we, the readers, know, but the, the sailors don't know, is that actually 
There's a whole, if you like, a kind of balanced system in these poles. There's a deep spirit that is underneath the keel and that knows and loves the bird, and that by shooting the bird, they've disturbed the spirit underneath the keel, and, and suddenly all kinds of massive forces are released around the boat because they didn't pay sufficient attention and didn't address with sufficient, if you like, honour and humility this vast and beautiful nature around them. They just snapped their fingers and thought they could do what they like, and they ran into disaster. And at the end of their story, the mariner has a very clear idea that we can't be quite just so purely human-centered and purely instrumental about it. So when at the end, the very end of the whole thing, the mariner is actually talking about what he's learned and how he feels things should go on, he's talking about religion because they're sitting outside a church, and he says, look, prayer is not just about our agenda. So he says, he prayeth best, who loveth best all things, both great and small. For the dear Lord who loveth us, he made and loveth all. And some of this stuff now, of course, deeply resonates with us in terms of how we're, in, we're impacting the environment. And you could look at it that we all have some form of albatross hanging around our neck, <laughs> choking us yeah. in some certain way, but we may have a different word or label or understanding yeah. on it all. Malcolm, I have to ask you, there was a passage you wrote in the book that I'm not sure did I fully understand. And it's very, very interesting. You write, Coleridge recognised that evil in himself and in others is itself something as a mystery. Now, as a poet and also as a, an Anglican priest, how do you understand that mystery? There are two levels in which I think evil and, if you like, the problem of evil and its presence and its effects is a mystery. At one deep level, I think, you know, one of the most profound intuitions and trusts and faiths of, of certainly my faith, but, but many others too, is that, is that there is a good God who made everything and that he loves us and that things were made good in themselves to begin with. And that therefore when we, when we encounter suffering, and particularly when we encounter malice from one person to another, and uh, even when we encounter death itself, death at all, any kind of death, you know, the death of a loved one, that feels to us like a, like a break in the fabric of being, like an outrage. There's something, if you like, mysteriously unnatural about that. And we cry out to God and say, why did you let this happen? How can this be? I know I can trust your goodness, and yet I know that we ourselves have done this. Now, there are lots of theological explanations about that, and the chief one that's usually advanced is that we have freedom and that we ourselves have freely chosen to screw things up, and that real freedom, which has real consequences, and that, of course, God comes into the midst of the mess we've made and helps us to sort it out from within. And all that's true to some degree, but it still leaves a mystery, which is like, why would we do that? What is it about us that makes us do that? And sometimes, I mean, people do bad things, and the reason why they did them is almost a mystery to themselves. So I think there is something unsolved and unresolved for most of us about the way in which suffering, both self-inflicted and inflicted by others, comes into our life. And I think the most honest kind of poetry recognizes that it hasn't got all the answers, but knows that the very fact that we find it a problem, the very fact that we find it a mystery, is testament to the fact that there is a goodness somewhere. Do you know what I mean? If there was no ultimate goodness, we wouldn't even notice evil. It would just be like par for the course. So Coleridge, in ways, in The Ancient Mariner, is giving us space to wriggle about, to ask these questions deep within ourselves. Is that it? Absolutely. I think it's really important. He rejected some of the poetry around him because he said that he disliked poetry that had some sort of obvious moral design on you and that was kind of preaching at you with a prefab answer that the poet had before he'd even written the poem. 
I think he was genuinely trying to explore something himself as he wrote the poem, trying to intuit something, trying to make a shape and feel his way after something. And I think the very fact that there have been so many different interpretations of the poem over the years shows that not that the poem was a failure to communicate one thing, but rather that it was a success in that it gave people a whole series of important and beautiful uh, images with which to wrestle and think through these. And, you know, everybody navigates slightly differently through that poem. He clearly had a deep vision and had a huge capacity to think and think independently. I'm just wondering, how do you explain his relationship with um, Sarah Coleridge? He made some extraordinarily bad judgment calls in his marriage. He did, yeah. I mean, yes, he certainly did that, and and it was it was it was tragic that that marriage didn't really survive, and it's. Be- you know, uh, tragic in this sense, and that it, it, there was a period when it was very good, and it could have been good. It, uh, the first thing to say about it is it was a sort of slightly, wasn't an ideal start. You know, he and Robert Southey were very idealistic young men thinking about creating a complete new way of life and a kind of perfect communist commune. They were all going to go to America, and it was really important that they had sort of, it was almost like setting off on the ark. You know, they were going to have 12 couples, and everybody was going to get married beforehand and then found this colony. And, you know, they met a nice family with sort of uh, three sisters, <laughs> you know, two were spoken for, one of whom uh, were, were one of whom by Robert Southey, and there was another one there. And they kind of put quite strong pressure for Coleridge to fall in love with her, and they should all go off together. Then, of course, the great scheme fell through. But he was kind of a bit sort of pressured in various ways, or he and Sarah between them were kind of rather sort of sat together. Now, having said that, they did actually then make the best of it, and I think he then grew to love her really quite deeply. But what caused the trouble, of course, was he met up with Wordsworth and and Dorothy Wordsworth's sister, And at first, the two of them and, indeed, Sarah Coleridge were all sort of, you know, chatting around the fireplace in Netherstory. But more and more, he was going out for long walks with Wordsworth and his sister. She was staying behind with the baby, you know, the classics that sort of split. So lots of important and soul-shifting things were happening there. But nevertheless, he was still... And then he went off to Germany um, because, um, you know, he wanted to learn German. And there was a plan, which... uh, This is where I think it's really tragic. At one point... Sarah was going to come with him to Germany with the baby. And I think if that had happened, they would have been fine. What did happen was that he went off and his uh, second child, Barclay, became really ill with um, smallpox. And Sarah sent letters and they didn't get through at first. And then, perversely, when he got the letter to say that, that the little boy had actually died and she was desperate, for him to come home, and he had the chance to go home with the Wordsworths. He persuaded himself that it was his absolute duty to stay in Germany and finish the academic work he was doing, and he delayed coming home. And I think, you know, his wife's heart was broken by that. And although he tried many other ways, you know, to get things together, there was a bit of a gap. And then, as of course is, I think, well known, when they all went up to the north, he met and fell in a kind of, I mean, a really quite platonic love, but nevertheless a very deep love, with um, another Sarah, Sarah Hutchinson. And um, I think that was because by that time, quite understandably, there wasn't the affection at home that there might have been if, if he'd sort of, you know, returned sooner. He was certainly very single-minded and obsessive, but it's remarkable that a man of such intelligence would make such a short-sighted and yeah. emotionally so unexplainable yeah. poor and, and decision. I find it extraordinary, even 
even reading the biography. You know, biographers are interested in sort of romantic liaisons, and they make a great deal of the romantic liaison, uh, which was entirely, I think, you know, not physical or anything, uh, as though that was the, the big cause of the upset. And I'm amazed at how many, mainly, I have to say, male biographers, gloss over the agony of this young woman left alone with a sick child and then, you know, not having a husband there when he died and really feeling that he hadn't engaged with it. I actually read Sarah Coleridge's letters, which, again, don't often get... And they're absolutely heartbreaking. So, I mean, I put quite a lot of them in, in the book because I really, you know, I do find it a mystery that Coleridge didn't immediately return home. And I think one of the things about it was that, you know, he'd run away from Cambridge, you know, as an undergraduate in another crisis and, you know, never finished his degree. People were investing money in him and saying, you're going to be not just the next great poet, but the next great philosopher poet. And I think he was absolutely persuaded that if he came back from Germany without this solid task finished, he'd be a failure and he wouldn't have done what people expected of him. He was always crushed, in a way, by other people's expectations. But this time he preferred the expectations. He thought more important, you know, at that point, what he imagined to be the big expectations of his, his patrons and backers, rather than the obvious and immediate expectations of the woman he deeply loved. And in fact, I mean, it's not like he wanted to stay in Germany. I mean, he was in an agony about it as well. So he was grimly doing what he thought was a righteous duty, and at the same time actually, you know, causing immense pain to both himself and his, his wife. You described The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner as a dreamlike poem, but it got me thinking that maybe he was just a little bit deluded about his own purpose and living in this dreamlike state. Because if you look at a lot of his relationships, certainly with his older brother, and I know that he had a very troubled childhood. There was a stunt that you wrote about very earlier on in the biography when he was a little fella, and he um, took a jump at one of his brothers in the kitchen. And it's a really odd story. Very unusual stuff. I mean, yeah, I think he was born with a, an extraordinary set of gifts, perhaps unparalleled imaginative and intellectual gifts, one of which meant that he could imagine and feel almost anything. He could, if you like, kind of whisper or talk or dream himself into any role. But he could also be plagued by, you know, fears, completely irrational fears or imaginary criticisms that, that you know, weren't there because he, he could just sort of visualise it all so much. Uh, now, that was a gift that he deployed beautifully for us in the sense of the kind of poetry that he wrote and the, the deep insights that he had. But it also didn't help him live life. And in fact, uh, because then he had, you know, his father died when he was young, um, you know, he was kind of estranged from his mother. He was sent to a school where he was brutally beaten. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff which, frankly, to the most calm and, you know, balanced of any of us would be pretty traumatic. But he had, you know... Well, it makes her a superb reading. (laughs) I have to say, there's a beautiful poem, which I think I I quote in translation, by the French poet Baudelaire, which is about albatrosses, funnily enough, although we don't know whether he'd read The Ancient Mariner by then or not. But Baudelaire tells an amazing um, story in this poem about... I mean, it's a story of human cruelty. It's about how, how when an albatross has sort of accidentally flown into the rigging of a ship, the sailors, to amuse themselves, sort of hobble it so it can't take off and fly and then they make it walk up and down the deck and of course the poor albatross because it's got these huge glorious wings which are so graceful and wonderful and allow it to soar over the south atlantic and fly everywhere once it's on land or on deck 
the very wings that enabled its flight become ungainly and trip it up and prevent it from doing anything. And, of course, in the poem, Baudelaire says, this is what poets are like, the vast wings that enable them to lift these great flights for us and for all of us mean that living ordinary life for them is extremely difficult. Thank you.